everyone. Welcome to ASC's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. This special episode is a recording of an education session titled The Molecular Biomarker Revolution in Metastatic NSCLC, presented at the annual meeting. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide that continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. Also, I want to remind everybody to tell your colleagues about the podcast and to subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. Good morning, everybody. And my name is Diana Ionescu. I'm a pathologist and AP lead at BC Cancer in Vancouver, Canada, and clinical professor of pathology at University of British Columbia in Vancouver. In recent years, our concept of lung cancer have undergone revolution. This is a statement made by Dr. Sonia Dasik, who's the current uh, pulmonary pathology president. And myself and my co-speaker were thinking about talking to you today about the molecular biomarker revolution in uh, metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Given that oncology, it's a multidisciplinary discipline, and it's very important for um, pathologists to play an active role in this multidisciplinary care, I invited as a co-speaker today, uh, Dr. Doru Paul, who's a medical oncologist and associate professor of clinical medicine at um, Wild Cornell Medical College in New York City, to give us the oncologist perspective of uh, molecular biomarkers in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, while I try to give you the pathologist perspective. We will try to organize our talk, uh, which is very comprehensive based on the title, through an introduction, then talking about standard of care biomarkers, new biomarkers, and emerging biomarkers. And to make things more interesting, we also are going to do this through uh, two case presentations. You are familiar with the learning objectives from the website. As you can see, they are quite comprehensive, and each of them can actually represent the topic for uh, one hour, or if you are really into lung cancer, into a couple of hour lecture each. So we will try to really give you some practical points uh, related to each of these learning objectives, and hopefully um, this will be something that you can apply to your uh, daily practice. So why are we talking about biomarkers? Why is biomarker testing essential? In my mind, a biomarker, it's the first essential step in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer diagnosis, stratification, treatment, and also in ongoing monitoring of patient response. Pathologists must have a true understanding of testing considerations for current and emerging biomarkers, and we need to know what type of sample will yield the most actionable information, which testing methodology is the most appropriate, and which biomarkers to assay, and this, it's the case for each of our patients. So without further ado, I'm going to move on and talk about the standard of care biomarkers in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. This pie chart, I think you've seen probably multiple pie charts um, such as this one, looking at the targetable driver mutations in uh, non-small cell lung cancer. The numbers vary. 
They do vary based on the population that we look at, uh, Caucasian versus Asians. It also varies depending on when this uh, pie chart was made. However, I think it's important to know that approximately 50% of the patients with advanced non-squamous, non-sponsored lung cancer do have a targetable driver mutation. Some of them are uh, more prevalent, such as uh, KRAS and uh, EGFR, but many of them are um, have a very low prevalence, around 2%. The latest NCCN guidelines, the version that we just asked, um, accessed a couple of days ago, lists a number of biomarkers in metastatic uh, non-small cell lung cancer that they recommend to test in clinical practice. And as you can see here, it, it includes some of the most common EGFR mutations, KRAS mutations, ALK rearrangement, ROS, BRAF, NTRAC, MET-exon-14 skipping, RET, and also PDL one testing. We will be talking about some of them in more uh, depth um, during the presentation. So let's move on and talk about our first patient. This is a 65-year-old woman, a non-smoker, who presents to the emergency room with abdominal pain and was diagnosed with acute diverticulitis by CT scan. At the time of the diagnosis, the chest CT showed an incidental finding of a lung mass. There was a 5 by 3.6 by 3.6 centimeter speculated mass located in the left upper lobe with pleural and diaphragmatic nodularity, small pleural effusion, and confluent adenopathy that extended into the left hilum and mediastinum. But PET scan, the lesion was PET avid, and also a metastasis was identified um, on the uh, third sacral uh, segment, suspicious or suspicious for bone metastasis by um, radiology. A bronchoscopy was performed, and we received in pathology three specimens, um, left upper lobe bronchial washings, brushings, and biopsy, and they were all positive for adenocarcinoma, as you can see on the left-hand side. And it was strongly and diffusely TTF1 positive, consistent with a lung primary. Biomarkers that were performed on the transbronchial biopsy were bioimmunohistochemistry, um, ALK and ROS were negative, and PDL1 uh, performed using the 22C3 PharmaDX kit showed a tumor proportion score uh, between 1 and 49%. An NGS panel was also uh, performed. At the time of molecular testing for this patient at the cancer agency, we used a DNA hybrid capture um, gene panel, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, these technologies a little bit later in the presentation. So the molecular pathology report for this patient was reported, as you can see here, um, using the tier reporting system, looking at variants of clinical or functional significance, and then variants of unknown significance. Later on, we actually moved on and reported them using all four tier um, variants. So for this particular uh, patient, what was identified was a mutation in the EGFR gene. As you can see, using this uh, nomenclature, it's a little bit difficult, even for a medical oncologist, I think, to understand exactly what it is. And this brings up an important um, point for pathologists. It's very important that while our molecular pathology reports are comprehensive, they also need to be easy to understand for our clinical colleagues. So another way to actually state that particular mutation, it's an exon, EGFR exon 20 insertion, and 
stating exactly uh, the insertion points because uh, I'm going to show you that that's important for treatment. So exon 20 insertions represent approximately 10% of all oncogenic EGFR mutations. They are the third most common class of mutations after the canonical EGFR mutations, um, deletion uh, 19 in exon 19 and uh, L85AR in exon 21. These are um, heterogeneous class of mutations, and as you can see on this diagram, some of them are sensitive to the first to third uh, generation of um, TKA inhibitors, but some of them actually are uh, confer resistance to these uh, therapies. And that's something that's uh, very important for medical oncologists to, to understand from the pathology report. Just as a one-slide overview of EGFR mutation, although this is an older slide, it's actually from 2010, it still is my, my most favorite uh, slide to present uh, for EGFR. If you look on the lower part of this slide, you can see the mutations associated with drug sensitivity, and you can appreciate that on exon 19 and exon 21 are the common mutation in EGFR, which are which account for approximately 90% of all EGFR mutations. We have um, also activating uh, mutations in exon 20, including the exon 20 insertions that uh, we're talking about today, and um, some in exon 18. On the upper slide of uh, upper side of the slide, you can see the uh, mutation associated with drug resistance. And the most important one is the T790M, which actually accounts for 50% of the uh, resistance mutations to uh, TK inhibitors. So how do we test for EGFR mutations? There are two main ways to identify these mutations, either by PCR or by NGS. Uh, PCR is typically performed sequentially in order to identify only the most common genetic alterations. And it's limited in its ability to detect molecularly heterogeneous mutations, such as exon 20 um, insertion mutations. They do require a relatively large tumor uh, tissue sample. And therefore, as you can see with this arrow, they really uh, decreased in um, usage in the last, in the last decade. On the other hand, NGS simultaneously tests thousands of genes without prior sequence knowledge and is a valuable tool to identify molecularly heterogeneous sequence alterations and use only a single, usually a smaller uh, tissue sample, and that's why it increased in popularity. The take-home message re uh, related to testing for exon 20 insertion is that PCR identifies only half of EGFR 20 exon insertions variants that are identified by NGS, and uh, therefore NGS it's the desirable uh, method to test for these mutations. Now that we have a molecular pathology report and uh, we transfer the patients to the medical oncologist, uh, we're going to see what Dr. Paul is going to do with the uh, results on this patient. Thank you. So these exon 20 insertions are an unmet need in the treatment of EGFR-mutated uh, lung cancer. Because as you can see, the survival with the exon 20 insertion mutations is really uh, inferior if you're looking at uh, the EGFR uh, mutations. So you have at five years uh, an 8% uh, survival. 
So compared with the other uh, EGFR mutations, the exon 20 insertions are associated with 75% increase in the risk of death, 93% increase the risk of progression, and 60% shorter time to next therapy. So our patient had an exon 20 insertion that is not sensitive to one of the EGFR sensitizing mutations, and therefore the response to uh, even a third-generation TKI like osimertinib would be really unsure. And currently, there is no first line that uh, would target this particular insertion that our patient had, which is a resistant mutation. So, subsequently, the patient was treated with six cycles of carboplatin and pemetrexate. And at that time, after the treatment, the, there was a response after the first two cycles, and uh, the treatment was continued up to six cycles and was switched to maintenance pemetrexate. Unfortunately, on maintenance pemetrexate, the patient progressed and then was switched to a new oral drug, monocertinib, and I'll talk briefly about monocertinib, that was based on her exon 20 insertion mutation, the specific mutation. A good response was noted for approximately 17 months, then again, disease progressed with a new level metastasis. Also, she received SBRT, so focal radiation to a lesion in the brain, while she was on monocertinib. She again progressed and she was switched to amivantamab, that it's a new antibody that is um, targeting uh, this particular exon uh, 20 insertions. And now, after six months, there is again progression in the lung. The patient received palliative radiation to uh, the chest and to the sacrum where there is a bone lesion. So here are, from the beginning, the different CT scans that are showing you initially when the tumor was approximately. Then, after being treated with monocertinib, and you see that uh, the tumor And this is the last CT scan here that, again, you have... Uh, recurrent disease, and you can also see here there is this uh, pleural effusion that uh, had to be tapped. So, monocertinib in EGFR exon 20. These were the two studies that were done, and the drug was approved based on these uh, uh, two studies. You see in the first one that the response rate in this uh, waterfall slides that was approximately 43%, and then in the second study that was performed was at, uh, 22%. So, um, uh, at this point, monocertinib uh, is approved, has been approved since 2021 for this uh, indication of the uh, exon 20 insertions. What is important to note is that uh, the drug is not very easy to tolerate because uh, in approximately 70% of the cases is associated with, uh, with diarrhea. And also, at this point, there are several studies that are ongoing to see whether this treatment can be also uh, started uh, de novo as a first intent in these uh, patients that have the exon 20 insertions. So you see the response is between 20 and 40%. The response to carboplatin or cisplatin with pemetrexate, it's in the range also of 40%. So uh, a randomized study is clearly needed before uh, saying that we can use this type of oral agent uh, in the first line of uh, exon 20 insertions, uh, metastatic adenocarcinoma of the lung. This is the other drug that was used. It's emivantamab. So amivantamab is a bispecific antibody, both EGFR and MET, and it's a fully human antibody. So this is similar to cetaximab, 
in the sense that it's inhibiting um, uh, the EGFR. Uh, and as cetaximab, it has this uh, characteristic rash, like an acne, that appears in approximately 85% of patients. It's also associated with, uh, with diarrhea. Um, in terms of uh, responses, uh, the responses are in the 40%, so the response rate is in the 40%, and uh, it has been also approved uh, in um, 2021 for the treatment of uh, uh, specifically uh, exon 20 uh, EGFR uh, insertions. So you can see here that for this uh, type of uh, cancers where you have the exon 20 insertions or the meta-amplification because it's a bispecific antibody, Certainly, amivantamab, uh, it's a drug that can be used. Same thing, it's in second line. It has to be compared with frontline uh, chemotherapy bef before becoming also uh, uh, of use in the first line. So, what did we learn so far? First of all, the exon 20 insertions are the third most common EGFR mutations, and they are heterogeneous. Some of them, they are more sensitive than others to therapeutic. Uh, uh, manipulations. There are several methods to test for this EGFR mutation. So first of all, we can look specifically for a mutation, like for example in the T790M, you can uh, even do uh, ctDNA from the blood. Then you can um, do testing as a part of uh, uh, gene panel, or you can uh, do hotspot testing looking at zones uh, of uh, the EGFR gene. And all this can be done by either PCR, either NGS, as um, Dr. Naus was uh, mentioning, NGS is detecting uh, almost double the number of insertions uh, when you have an EGFR20 exon insertion. The turnaround times are highly dependent on technology. In our institution at uh, Cornell, uh, it takes approximately uh, 12 to 15 working days to have the results. Um, and of course, there are several uh, companies that uh, you may be familiar with that are doing either circulating tumor DNA. Uh, either whole exome analysis that uh, have a turning time also in the range of uh, two weeks. Pathologists are critical, really, in uh, coordinating tissue acquisition, uh, processing and selecting the best uh, tests, and um, communicating with the um, uh, pathology should be really standard of care uh, in tumor boards, and um, pathology can really inform the medical oncologist uh, what uh, would be the, uh, the best uh, test to perform according to the question that uh, is asked. Now, I will um, uh, start talking about the second part of the talk, new biomarkers in uh, the metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. The second case is a 75-year-old uh, Caucasian woman, non-smoker, that was referred by a family doctor to a pulmonologist because she had a persistent cough for several months that's been progressively worse, with copious foamy whitey secretions suggestive of bronchorrhea. On the CT scan, she had the left lower low predominant pneumonia with the minimal involvement of the lingula and the right lower lobe. Um, at that time, the pulmonologist uh, chose to uh, do just routine CT scans. And uh, on the routine CT scans, uh, she had worsening uh, this uh, left lower lobe uh, uh, and right lower lobe infiltrates. There was no lymphadenopathy at that time. Uh, but because of this uh, progression of the infiltrate, uh, a biopsy was uh, performed. So this is how the um, CT scans were looking prior to surgery. You can see here the lesion. And you can see here the progression, in fact, of the infiltrate over time. Uh, so in six months, the uh, infiltrate worsened. At that time, I will uh, let Dr. Naus explain you further. 
So as usual in the lung, uh, when a procedure is performed, we don't only receive a biopsy. It is rarely the case that a single specimen is received from a, a procedure done in the lung. Usually there are bronchoalveolar lavages, washings, brushings, uh, biopsies, sampling on the lymph nodes all at once. This patient didn't have lymph adenopathy, so there was no sampling on the lymph node. But there was a biopsy in the bronchoalveolar lavage received in the laboratory. And you can see here, uh, it was scant. So not too many uh, clusters, but they were uh, highly diagnosis, diagnostic. So it was diagnostic for um, adenocarcinoma, which was, again, TTF1 positive, consistent with lung primary. And between the biopsy and the cell block from the bronchoalveolar lavage, the cell block seemed to be better. As I said, the cellularity was low, but the tumor content was very high. So it was a cell block that has almost, that was, almost entirely consistent of tumor, and that was the best specimen for testing. So several biomarkers, again, were performed by immunostochemistry, ALK and ROS1 were negative. Um, on this patient, uh, because less than 100 tumor cells were, were present, uh, PDL1 testing, the sample was inadequate for PDL1 testing. And again, we perform uh, NGS, this time with a new panel. This panel is uh, that we're using currently at the cancer agency. It's an Illumina focus panel. And what's important about it is that it does include DNA-based um, testing for fusions. And that's going to be important for this patient because on the pathology report, you can appreciate um, that a, a gene fusion was detected. Um, and this is the fusion between the red, red gene. And the fusion partner is this CCDC6, which is one of the most common partners that are um, fused with RET um, in non-small cell lung cancer. Another thing that I would like you to appreciate here is that there are four tier uh, variants reported uh, currently in the pathology report. So um, with this information in the pathology report, I would like to um, just tell you that there are different methods for identifying fusions. And we're not talking about RET fusion. I took this as an example, but any fusion, NTRAC, RET, uh, NRG1, ROS, ALK, uh, can be identified uh, using similar technologies. We can use uh, IG immunostochemistry for some of them. We can use FISH, RT-PCR, multiplex panel, or home, uh, whole genome sequencing. Turnaround time and cost definitely goes up the more complex these technologies are. And important to know is that immunohistochemistry can be used for screening, but it's not the definitive test for some of the fusions like ROS1 and NTRAC. And also important for FISH is that it could be the method of cho choice, maybe not for non-sponsor lung cancer, um, which is a... Um, cancer with a high incidence and low prevalence of uh, fusions, but for cancers that have a low incidence and high prevalence of these fusions. So for such cases, FISH may be the method of choice. So if we look at approaches for fusion detection by NGS only, there can be um, classified in amplicon-based, anchor multiplex PCR, and DNA hybrid uh, capture. The DNA hybrid capture are the most popular. I give you here some examples. They are not all inclusive. 
Um, but for example, foundation, uh, medicine, the uh, MSK impact panel, and our little uh, Illumina focus panel, just with 50 gene, it's a DNA hybrid capture one. The reason this is such a popular uh, testing technology is because it really uh, gives um, very uh, high quality results and can detect novel fusion partners. However, this may not be uh, also the most economical one. Uh, the Amplicon base is also very popular, uh, especially if it's performed on the DNA. It can be performed on the RNA as well, but uh, RNA is much more difficult to uh, obtain for from uh, FFPE. It does um, require low quality of and quality of DNA, and it works very well on small or compromised uh, samples. I think it's very important for pathologists to know the advantages and disadvantages and the limitations of these technologies, uh, especially when you look on bringing something new to your laboratory. So let's go back to our patient. He, her bronchorrhea really got worse, and they decided to do a palliative surgery uh, in order to help her with her symptomatology. So a left lower lobe lobectomy and left upper lobe wedge resection was performed, and it showed an adenocarcinoma, and there were actually multiple foci. And I think that correlates very beautifully with those patchy infiltrates, infiltrates that Dr. Paul showed on the CT scan. Um, it was 50% uh, popularly, but it had a few um, other morphologies as well. The largest focus was 11.5 centimeter. I think this is very interesting because there wasn't really an actual mass identified on CT scan. Everything was like a pneumonic infiltrate. Um, anyway, no pleural invasion, no lymphovascular invasion, but very characteristic for uh, the type of adenocarcinoma with popular histology, they were spread through air spaces present. And here are the pictures, um, so the um, papillary type adenocarcinoma and the spread through the air spaces. You can appreciate the alveolar wall that are um, maintained and the um, clusters of tumor are in between these normally looking alveolar walls. By immunohistochemistry, again, the tumor was consistent with lung primary being strongly and diffusely positive for TTF1 and napsin A. And now we're going back to Dr. Paul for to see what happens with the patient's father. So, this patient um, had a CT scan of the abdomen, pelvis, uh, head and neck, I mean, brain scanning also, bone scan, and there were no distal disease. So at this point, the disease is really localized only in the lung, and um, as Dr. Nowes described, there are lesions that are present in uh, both lungs, so it can be considered metastatic disease. Uh, also, um, on a PET scan that you can see here, the, West, the SUV was really borderline, and uh, so the, basically the tumor was not uh, uptaking glucose, and uh, as you know, in lung cancer, the tumor may use also glutamine and other uh, fuels. At that time, the patient was referred to medical oncology. So... The somatic uh, red fusions and mutations, they're really associated with the oncogenesis um, in multiple uh, locations. You may be familiar with the medullary uh, thyroid cancer, where they are present uh, both uh, in inherited uh, syndromes, like MEN1 and MEN2, or in uh, de novo uh, mutations. Uh, in lung cancer, we are talking really about fusions, not about uh, mutations. And uh, in uh, this particular uh, patient, the fusion that was present is the CCDC6 
which is uh, the second most common fusion after KIF-5B. It's approximately present in 25% uh, of the patients uh, with red fusions in uh, adenocarcinoma of the lung. The other one, the, the most common one, is present approximately 40 to 50%. So these two uh, mutations are really the most common mutation present in, uh, uh, in patients with red fusions in uh, uh, lung cancer. So RET is an interesting protein because um, it is present in embryogenesis where it plays a role both in the development of the nervous system, the hematopoietic uh, system, uh, also the GI and the GU systems, the both uh, gastrointestinal and the urologic systems. In um, uh, cancer, it can have both mutations that are present uh, here, uh, like uh, in the medullary carcinoma, or mutations uh, inside in the uh, tyrosine part, uh, that may be present both in the medullary thyroid cancer or in thyroid cancer. In uh, lung cancer, um, there are these fusions that uh, are present between portions of uh, the molecules, and it's a heterogeneous disease, and there are more than 30 uh, different companions of red that have been described, besides the, the two that I just uh, mentioned. And if you look at the red pathway, in fact, um, it has a pleiotropic role uh, both in uh, gene regulation, leading to uh, division, leading to uh, invasion and uh, metastasis because uh, it's activating the PI3K pathway, the KRS uh, pathway, the MEP kinase pathways. So, serpercatinib, it's uh, a specific red fusion positive non-sponsored lung cancer inhibitors was developed. Uh, the originally trials that uh, were using uh, other TKIs like cabozantini, for example, um, were not uh, leading to, uh, on one hand, good responses. On the other hand, they were very toxic. So uh, more specific uh, inhibitors were uh, looked, and uh, selpercatin was the first one that uh, was approved in 2020. Based um, on uh, the libretto studies or two uh, libretto studies, and the overall response rate was. Um, 64% uh, in um, uh, second line after platinum-based uh, uh, chemotherapy and 85% uh, in the naive uh, patients. There is another drug, prolcetinib, that uh, has been approved this year, I'm sorry, in 2021, for the same uh, indication in uh, uh, patients that have red fusions. Um, the uh, difference uh, is really in terms of the uh, side effects more, salpercatinib has a little more uh, hypertension associated and uh, prolcetinib has a little more diarrhea uh, associated. But really, uh, in terms of the side effects, they're very similar. In terms of uh, the efficacy, the progression-free survival with, with uh, salpercatinib um, in uh, patients that uh, were not previously uh, treated was superior. So if you're thinking about uh, using de novo, uh, clearly, selpercatinib uh, should be uh, used instead of uh, uh, pralcetinib. In terms of the second line, um, they are similar. So now I'm going to talk about um, something which is uh, of a lot of uh, interest to me, which are the emerging uh, biomarkers. And uh, this is the pie that uh, uh, has been presented um, here. And... Um, you have approximately uh, 40% of these uh, KRAS mutations in uh, non-small cell. They are G12C. And now uh, we have a drug that has been approved. So overall, in adenocarcinoma, approximately 13% of mutations 
Uh, they are Keras uh, G12C, and they are amenable to treatment uh, with sotorasib, which is uh, the new inhibitor. This spy, it's uh, if you if you look at the year, uh, was uh, published initially in 2016, and now we are six years later. So what I'm going to show you is really making the things a little more complicated and looking at uh, what's going on if uh, there is an association between uh, different uh, mutations. So we're going to really to the next level in which you are not thinking also in terms of one mutation, but also association between mutations. And I'm going to present you this um, uh, interesting uh, study, Poseidon study, recently uh, presented at um, uh, last month at uh, the World uh, Lung. So the Keras mutations uh, in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer are heterogeneous uh, and they're typically considered uh, mutually exclusive. Although as part of my PhD uh, seven years ago, uh, we found that 40% uh, of this Keras mutation, they can have a second uh, uh, driver present. We presented this in 2015. Uh, and then it was also presented uh, by a German group at ASCO in 2015. Uh, and there's uh, specific commutations that you can see here that are present in the in the Keras G12C. Uh, for our interest, um, there is this STK11 present in um, approximately 30% uh, of cases, and the Kelch-like uh, ECH associated protein one mutation, KIP1, present in uh, 13 to 27%. Uh, STK, KIP1, and Keras. They are really a bad company, and um, when you have all uh, three of them uh, present, the responses to the sotoracib are like 10%. Uh, STK is the third most commonly mutated uh, gene in lung uh, adenocarcinoma after TP53 and Keras, and um, uh, it's a tumor suppressor, so uh, like uh, TP53. The role of KIP1 is in uh, oxidation, and uh, in order for tumors to survive in the circulation, they need to have strong uh, antioxidant uh, metabolism, and uh, KIP1 plays a role in that. This is the study, the Poseidon study. It randomized more than a thousand patients. They were all um, EGFR and ALK wild type. They all had a good performance status. PS uh, performance status was 0 or 1. They were all treatment naive for metastatic disease. And uh, they all had a tumor biopsy and uh, also base naive plasma sample for uh, circulating tumor DNA. There was a further certification done based on the PD1 expression, the histology, uh, non squamous versus squamous, and the disease stage for A versus 4B. So the three arms, the first uh, arm was looking at durvalumab. Uh, which is a um, PDL1 inhibitor plus tremelumilab, tremelumimab, which is a CTLA4 inhibitor plus chemotherapy uh, that was uh, given with carbotaxel and penetrexate for four cycles. The second arm was just using durvalumab and chemotherapy, and the uh, sec the third arm was really the classical uh, chemotherapy with uh, pemetrexate and uh, platinum salts. Subsequently, the patients uh, were allowed to receive um, further uh, durvalumab um, uh, until progression disease or the combination of uh, tramelitinumab and uh, durvalumab. So, uh, what is interesting here is that if you're looking at the survival curves in the Keras mutated patients, you can see that the triplet had really the best uh, probability of overall survival. In terms of uh, the triplet for the wild type, there was no difference. Secondly, for patients that have um, a mutation in their um, 
uh, SDK 11. Again, the triplet performed very good, and there was a trend towards overall survival improvement. And third, also for the key point mutation, there was um, uh, a trend towards overall survival improvement. So in this experimental analysis from Poseidon, there was a trend for benefit in um, uh, using trimalibumab, durvalumab, and uh, chemotherapy for SDK11 mutations, for KIP1 mutations, and for the uh, KRAS mutation in metastatic uh, non-small cell of the lung. So, so Tarasib uh, was already approved in 2021 for this mutation um, G12C, uh, which again is present in approximately 30% of uh, patients. So if you're looking in the, this study, published in New England Journal of Medicine, what is interesting here is if it's the uh, response rate in terms of uh, different uh, mutations was best if the KIP1 was wild-type. So you see here, SDK either mutated or wild-type has the best response really when the KIP1 is wild-type. So if you're going back to the Poseidon, what is becoming um, interesting in terms of biomarkers is that uh, if you have a patient that uh, you're um, uh, really considering uh, giving uh, sotoracib, if the patient has a triple mutation, all three SDK11, KIP1, and uh, KRAS mutated, the response rate is like 10%. And I showed you already the uh, response rate in the ranges of um, 40% if you're using the uh, triplet of um, um, a CTLA-4 inhibitor, a PD-1 inhibitor, and chemotherapy. So you can really stratify um, your uh, use of sotoracib, and patients that have um, a wild type uh, KIP1, uh, they can have the oral drug uh, sotoracib, which uh, of course is not uh, lacking uh, side effects. Again, it can has some diarrhea. <coughs> also, uh, we have to look at uh, uh, EKGs for rare acute prolongations, but it's better tolerated than the chemotherapy uh, immunotherapy combo. Now I'm going to talk to you about immunotherapy, which has been really a very hot uh, subject in the last 10 years, in the last decade. So you have this uh, classical PD-1 expression, the mutational load and the CD8 T cell density. So uh, just to remind you, these are, um, uh, in terms of prognostic, the PD-1 expression and the mutational load, they uh, cannot really tell you if the patient uh, survival is going to be improved. The TILs, the tumor infusion lymphocytes, in fact, they do. So they have a prognostic advantage. In terms of the prediction of response, all three of them, the PDL1 mutational load and the CD8 T cell, uh, they have uh, a role. So the PDL1 expression, um, uh, you can see here that combined with the TILs is present in approximately 45% of uh, cancers. It is not staying the same because it can change with treatment. As you can see this in this case, after um, uh, crizotinib, the PDL1 expression was 50% before it became negative. So it's, it's a dynamical uh, marker. The tumor mutation burden has been demonstrated, in fact, uh, to have also a role. And you can see here stratification between different tumor mutation burdens. And the lung cancer is clearly uh, has been proven in uh, uh, more than 14 uh, uh, randomized studies to play a role. And you can see here, actually, the different oncogenes, uh, they have uh, a stronger or less association with the tumor mutation burden. The KRAS and the BRF has a strong association with the TMB. So the immune infiltrate is uh, something which uh, uh, is very interesting. And you can see here that in different uh, type of uh, cancers, you can have different uh, immune infiltrates. 
And one of the most uh, interesting uh, paper that was published uh, lately, this is published uh, four years ago, is looking really at the immune landscape of cancer. And we are combining uh, different uh, information taken for the RNA-seq, the uh, miRNA, the DNA copy number mutations, clinical data methylation. And then we can have six immune uh, subtests that are very important because they are associated actually with the survival. The inflammatory uh, type in terms of uh, immune type uh, is the one that has uh, the best prognostic. If you're looking at um, uh, the immune infiltrate in terms of percentage, you can see that lung cancers, both the adenocarcinoma and the uh, squamous cell has the highest infiltration. Um, and then if you're looking at different types, you see different types of lung cancers, squamous versus adenocarcinoma, they have different percentage of uh, these uh, immunotypes. And you can see that uh, maybe the, the fact that um, uh, the adenocarcinoma metastatic uh, has a better uh, prognostic is that it has more of this C3 uh, type of um, immune infiltrate. You can see here that the uh, C3 type is associated with the best prognostic. So it's becoming uh, here uh, more and more clear that uh, you have all these elements. You have on one hand the genes that are uh, mutated and... Um, uh, you have also immune infiltrates, and you have uh, the communication between uh, uh, cells via soluble proteins. So um, they are not independent. So when you have certain mutations like Keras, for example, it's uh, inducing an exclusion of the B cell and the T cell in the environment. So this is why the near future is going really to be in combination treatments that are combining TKAs with um, immunotherapy. And um, as you have seen in, uh, in breast cancer uh, being used the oncotype for uh, women in terms of receiving uh, adjuvant treatment, uh, uh, women that are EGFR, um, that are ERPR positive, uh, HER2 negative, probably the same thing is going to happen in the near future in, in which uh, you have these scores that are going to be developed uh, with uh, uh, different uh, uh, level of information, both coming from the type of mutations, from the immune infiltrates, from the type of uh, immune cells, um, and uh, they're going to uh, have uh, really uh, very important roles, both the prognostic, the prognosis, and uh, the prediction of um, uh, response to treatment. So in the near future, these four types that I described prior, uh, with immune environment that it's uh, rich in cells, you have both pd one expression and TILs, immune environment that is a desert, so-called um, immunologic desert, immune environment which you have at the periphery, the uh, CD8 cells, uh, and the, the immune environment where, it's, where the uh, CD8 cells are inhibited by uh, the tumor. So uh, we can think of ways, and you're going to have uh, this slide and you can analyze it after the talk. Uh, you can have different ways of um, doing studies and uh, targeting specifically different uh, uh, of these environments. So um, the conclusion is that um, uh, this is an extremely exciting field. And uh, at ASCO uh, this year, you have uh, all these talks about machine learning, which are integrating data from um, different levels, from uh, you know the intracellular, extracellular, um, and also clinical data. And uh, I think this is really uh, the future in um, you know oncology. And um, for you pathologists, I think uh, a lot of interesting things uh, are coming. I will tell you briefly, you know, in terms of uh, the this um, immuno uh, different uh, immune infiltrates. What is important to, to remember that in um, metastatic uh, lung cancer, uh, there is approximately forty percent uh, of the PDL1 uh, uh, 
uh, expression more than 50%. So you have more than 50% PD-L1 in approximately 40% of cancers. And then uh, in terms of the tumor mutation burden, approximately 40% is more than 10 megabases. And uh, the third thing in terms of that uh, infiltrate with the juicy infiltrates, it's again um, approximately 40%. So knowing these three numbers, which are between 40 and 50%, you can understand that uh, with our best tools now, combining uh, immunotherapies like CTLA-4 inhibitors or pd one we can achieve in the range of like 50%. So this is the, the magic number. Uh, this is uh, at this time uh, where, the, uh, where the limit is. Thank you very much.